morning, everyone. Um, today's reading is taken from 2 Corinthians 6, verse, sorry, chapter 6, verse 3 to 7. And more than that. Yeah, a lot more than that. Um, we, put no stumbling blo- we put no stumbling block in anyone's path, so that our ministry will not be discredited. Rather, as servants of God, we command ourselves in every way, in great endurance, in troubles, hardships, and distress, in beatings, imprisonments, and riots, in hard work, sleepless nights, and hunger, in purity, understanding, patience, and kindness, in the, in the Holy Spirit, and in, in sincere love, in truthful speech, and in the power of God, with weapons of righteousness in the right hand and in the left, through glory and dishonor, bad report and good report, genuine yet regarded as impostors, known yet regarded as unknown, dying and yet we live on, beaten and yet not killed, sorrowful yet always rejoicing, poor yet making many rich, having nothing and yet possessing everything. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians, and opened wide our hearts to you. We are not withholding our affection from you, but you are withholding yours from us. As a fair exchange, I speak as to my children. Open wide your hearts also. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belia? Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What arrangement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, and I will receive you. And I will be a father to you, and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Almighty. Therefore, since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. Make room for us in your hearts. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have exploited no one. I do not say this to condemn you. I have said before that I have such a place in our hearts, that you have such a place in our hearts, that we would, re- that we would live or die with you. I have spoken to you with great frankness. I take great, great pride in you. I am greatly encouraged in all our troubles. My joy knows no bounds. From when we came to Macedonia, we had no rest, but we are harassed at every turn, conflicts on the outside and fears within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us from coming, by the coming of Titus, and not only by, the, by his coming, but also by the comfort you have given him. He told us about your com- longing for me, your deep sorrow, your ardent concern for me, so that my joy was greater than ever. This is the word of the Lord. Each of us is a temple in whom God lives. God himself put it this way. I'll live in them, I'll move in them, I'll be their God and they'll be my people. So leave the corruption and the compromise. Leave it for good, says God. Don't link up with those who will pollute you. I want you all for myself. I'll be a father to you. You'll be my sons and daughters. With promises like this to pull us on, dear friends. Let's make a clean break from everything that defiles or distracts us, both within and without. Let's make our entire lives fit in holy temples for the worship of God.
while I was at, at university, my brother once visited me. Uh, he's two years younger. Um, a thousand miles away, so he wasn't a, a frequent visitor to campus. Um, I was really excited to have him. He slept on the floor in my room, and, and uh, it was like kind of good times. Um, now, my brother and I don't look all that much alike. Um, two inches taller, about 10 kilos heavier, and, and uh, he uh, has darker hair. He doesn't wear glasses. Um, there's not much about us that, that denotes a, a family resemblance, put it that way. But interestingly, um, apparently that didn't stop people from associating the two of us. I was in class one day, and my brother was out walking around, and uh, I saw him later for dinner, and, and he told me a story. Apparently two of my friends were walking across campus and saw him from a distance across the yard. And uh, they came up to him and, and, and came right up to him and said, You're a Varner, aren't you? Varner is my surname, for those of you that don't know. You're a Varner, aren't you? And worried that it might be some college prank or the, the introduction to hazing. My brother, you know, answered tentatively, yeah, do I, do I know you? And, and he said, no, but you move just like your brother. <laughs> These two friends of mine were able to place my brother simply by the way he walked. Apparently, Varners have a peculiar gait. <laughs> but so do Christians. And that's the message I think Paul is driving home to his Corinthians friends in our passage for today. The way you walk says a lot about you. It tells people what you're about and to whom you belong. Now, when I study Paul's letters, and it doesn't have to mean for preaching or for, for you know, upfront purposes, but even on my own, I try to ask three questions. Um, not something that I... I you know, it makes me sound like a Bible robot. Uh, I process three questions. But, but no, three questions in mind. When you read the, the Paul's letters, I think they're helpful. The first is, is, what was it? These are real people, by the way. Paul was a real person who wrote real letters. His readers were real people in need of instruction and wanting a friend. Keep in mind, they didn't wake up every morning, have their coffee, and check Facebook and email. Every month or two, they might get a letter that's been passed through other churches. And that's a big, big day. It's a lot of fun. You, you feel like you're on the map again. Um, so Paul wrote letters to real people. So the first question I always ask when we look at a Pauline epistle is, first of all, what was the original message that Paul had in mind when he wrote the letter to real people? What can it be? And we need to do our best to do the hard work to find out what that is. Now, we'll be spending most of our time today on that question. The second question is one I want you to be thinking about this week as you do your quiet times, or maybe it's just as you're walking to, uh, to your job or driving to work or, or walking to class, and that is, what principles, values, or key ideas can I draw from the message that Paul was saying to his people? The third question then follows from the second, and that is, how does that apply to me? Those of us that believe this Jesus thing happen to believe the Bible still speaks. It's not an ancient constitution or, or the Code of Hammurabi or some kind of ancient codex. It's a, it's a text that, that in a way speaks to us right now today. So the question we have to ask is, after we've done the question of what did it mean to the original readers? What does it mean for me? What does it mean for you? Those are the three, the three questions. And so that's what the, the approach I want to take uh, to today's passage. Uh, because I think it reveals some things that we need to hear. Um, and maybe, maybe opens up the passage. So, what was Paul actually saying to these Corinthians, these real people? The context, we've covered this in previous sermons, our, our teaching team. We know that there has been friction between Paul and the Corinthians. Now, he planted a church 
a long while back and became kind of their spiritual father of sorts. And then they've been kind of sliding away a little bit. And there's some friction. Um, they've had some, some tough interactions, some hard conversations, some things that didn't go real well, actually. We also gather from both Corinthian letters, it's a first and a second Corinthians in the Bible, that some new teachers have come to town and have the Corinthians questioning some of the basics they learned from Paul. Okay? Paul is growing worried about them, about the Corinthians, and their interactions lately. Paul's and, and the Corinthians haven't been very good. In this letter, he is trying his best to bring about reconciliation. We've covered that over and over. That's the central theme of our teaching series, Reconciliation in 2 Corinthians. Reconciliation, twofold. First, between Paul and his friends. Second, between his friends and the Lord Paul represents, Jesus. Last night was May Dip, apparently. So if none of that made sense to you, if you're tired, maybe some Bieber will help. Paul is like... You're so indecisive of what I'm saying. Trying to catch the beat, make up your heart. Don't know if you're happy or complaining. Don't want for us to end. He's asking the Corinthians, what do you mean? But, why not? I, I, that's a bucket list thing. I got Bieber in his sermon. Um, but me telling you the problems between Paul and the folks to whom he was related... Um, doesn't exactly, it, it really doesn't stir the imagination, at least it didn't to me as I, as I thought through this sermon all week. The fact is, when you hear about relational trouble with people you don't know, it's, it, you don't engage with it, you kind of tune it out. It, it kind of reminds me, those of you that have had significant others, every now and again, that significant other will try to tell you about relational problems a friend's having with, with her boyfriend or girlfriend. And it's not that you don't care. <laughs> it's, just that you, it's just that you don't care, Yeah. <laughs> It doesn't move you, you know. You have to really check in and focus. This is a critical relationship building time. This is that cognitive switch you turn on just to make sure that the other person knows you care. It's hard work. Um, but if you know the people involved, if it's a sister, if it's a cousin, if it's someone else, it gets you in the gut and you're drawn in. Just like, let's be fair, I notice a difference in the body language in the room when I tell a story or when I'm, when I'm uh, reading a point or something. You lean forward. Um, stories that give us some connection draw us in. So what I want to do is introduce you to the Corinthians. If you know them, maybe you'll care more about what I say today. What we actually know about Corinth is quite a bit, actually. Now, this was an ancient town um, of significant trading importance. It was destroyed by the Romans. They were coming east. Uh, you can see Italy. Rome's conveniently located somewhere in there. Um, they moved east, and they destroyed Corinth. They were a bit of a problem in 150 AD, rough, or uh, BC, roughly. Now, they left it fallow. So they left it destroyed. They raised it to the ground and left it. There was no one there until 44 BC when Julius Caesar decided that, that was an important place to open again to keep commerce going in the Mediterranean. Keep in mind, there's no folks there to work. So what he does is he, he brings folks in. He takes Romans and Greeks who know what they're doing. These are people with actual skills, trades, kind of movers and shakers, people with, with the ability to interact. These aren't the, uh, the, he didn't unleash or open up the prisons and say, go populate Corinth for me, maybe make something happen. He took people who knew what they were doing and knew their business, and he planted them there. This is 44 B.C., 100 years roughly before Paul showed up. That's not a lot of time. 
everyone there would know stories from their grandparents of what it was like to come to dead Corinth and build it back. Corinth was full of Romans, Greeks, also a ton of folks from the east. If you see where Troas, Ephesus, that's Asia Minor, Turkey today. And then on east, there's a huge trading market for all kinds of things. And, and we can, you know, you probably know all about that. But, um, but, but it was important. Things were coming out of the east that, that were very valuable. And so you had folks coming in from all different cultures. Also, there was a Jewish uh, group of folks that moved out of Rome when things got a little crazy. Uh, and that happened quite often. And settled in Corinth because it was a little safer. Um, there weren't as many ingrained biases there. And they could get away with a little bit more, I think, in terms of worship. What I want you to think about the people who populated Corinth is this. These are folks who did not have a lot of roots here. They were there to do a job. They were there to make money. This is the Wild West, the frontier, the, uh, the colony. This was somewhere where you went. There were no hierarchies in terms of uh, old families, old money. Everybody had a shot, and everybody was fighting for that shot. There's a lot of friction in Corinth now. It's also a key trading center, and I think you can see that from the map. Basically, one thing, it connects Rome with Asia, and you're like, why? It's in the middle. Here's the thing. One thing you've got to remember about, about sailing in this time, they didn't much like getting away from land. Uh, there were no lifeboats, no SOS. There was no Marconi machine or, or whatever it is they use these days to uh, broadcast trouble. Um, they're, they're toast, man, if they can't get to the coast. I like that. Um, <laughs> so they hugged, they hugged the coastline. Interestingly, though, there's an isthmus, have you all say that, right there. And, and stuff coming from Athens to the west to Rome, what they do is offload, actually, on the east side of Corinth. Pick it up, carry it to other boats on the west side of Corinth, that little, that little firth there. Uh, and they, they, they truck it out to the west. That was way safer because of storms than going around the bottom. Everything went through Corinth. This is no backwater place. With the blending of people came blendings of religion. I'll keep moving here. There were t- archaeology is a beautiful thing um, to some of us. What we know is there were at least 26 different places of worship in Corinth when Paul showed up. There may have been more, but at least 26 different places of worship. People worshiping different things, different gods, all kinds of things happening. Blending of religions, a lot of temptation to mix it up. There was also a strong impulse to... Um, I'd say sexual immorality. That, that, that was particularly true prior to its destruction in 150, but it seemed to have picked it up. Anyone who reads history knows that in any place where, where there are people who are temporary and sailors coming in and that it breeds a culture whereby uh, promiscuity kind of is on the rise. Interestingly, and I found this fascinating, two words were created. Um, a common word throughout the whole Mediterranean for a prostitute was a Corinthian girl. Um, a new word was coined to Corinthianize. That's an actual Greek word, Corinthianize. And what it means is to, to become immoral or to make something immoral. That alone to me is evidence that this place was messed up. It's a boom town where money's flaunted. Um, Gordon Fee, a, a, a fun professor of, of Old Testament um, and, and, and the Bible, he calls it the Las Vegas of the ancient world. Another scholar calls it San Francisco during the gold rush. It's a boom town, and folks are throwing their cash around. Individuality is the mark of the culture. You don't have family networks tying you in. Perhaps more than any other city in the ancient Mediterranean world, people are looking out for their own interests. And in a context like this, image matters. 
Fair? Now that you know a little bit about the uh, environment within which our friends, the Corinthians, would have been making their decisions, living life, um, we want to move on and take um, a glance at what Paul's, in light of what you know, what Paul's saying in the scripture today. Lincoln read, um, and there's quite a bit there, but let's just break it down right quick. I'll miss a lot. That's fine. Three things. Part one, Paul reminds his friends who he is and what he's about. He and his partners in ministry have been faithful and trustworthy from the beginning, even through hardships of every kind. He insists that their hearts, Paul and his friends, have always been open to the Corinthians. Part two, in Paul's mind, the Corinthians have been holding back. They have become yoked with unbelievers and have changed. They also seem to be backsliding when it comes to living holy lives. What do you mean? Part three, Paul makes an appeal for change. He calls them back to a life of holiness and asks them to once again make room for Paul and his team. He makes an appeal for reconciliation. So that's the overview. That's what's going on. But what exactly was Paul saying to the Corinthians? What's the point? Why stay awake for the rest of the message? What is he on about, as you people tend to say? So we can't cover everything today, but there is one thing that I do want to get um, too, and I think it's a key to, to, for me at least, unlocking the passage, and hopefully it'll bring some color to, to this whole whole situation. And that is um, the scripture. It's it's key and it's central, I think, in in the text that we read from today. And that is Second Corinthians six fourteen. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. What I want to do is break that down. I want to th- talk a little bit about what the, what I think that might mean, and then how I think everything pivots on that, and how I think that opens our eyes to what Paul's saying, and then. It might just make you have to act different. We'll see. Now, from as early as I can remember, I've been taught that the scripture, do not be yoked together with unbelievers, meant essentially two things. First, no matter how cute the girl was, <laughs> if she wasn't a Christian, I was probably not allowed to go out with her. In fact, emphatically not allowed to go out with her. For no, you know, nothing. That was a, a clear thing. Don't be yoked. All right, mom. I guess I'm in tonight, you know, whatever. (laughs) The second thing is watch out who you're hanging out with. You want to go to what party? Who's there? You can't go to that. Don't be yoked unequally with unbelievers. Now, I want to be clear. These are not uh, wrong principles. And I think there are plenty of other scriptures to back these up. Um, Wise living demands, I think, uh, uh, keeping close of those, those two ideas. But I don't think that's what Paul is talking about here. In fact, I think he's not talking about that at all, which is really weird, but bear with me. Let's get after it. There's two reasons why I think um, this is happening. Um, let me say this. To get what we're getting at, and I'll get to the two reasons, the task begins with rethinking the image that comes to mind when we see the word unbeliever. I want to suggest that Paul isn't referring to people who are outside of the Christian community. He is referring to a group of people who call themselves Christians but preach another gospel. Paul has had it with the big talkers. They're leading his friends astray, and in this passage, he calls them out. It goes right for the jugular. Why do I think this is the case? Two reasons. The first is, as Toby encouraged us last week, if we really care about Scripture, if you say you care, then treat it right, man. Get to know it. The fact is, you can't sometimes take one text in isolation and, 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 and presume to come out with a meaning. Read it in light of the entire narrative. If you care about it, let's do that. So that's what we'll do today. What I want to do is, is tell you what Paul says about your interaction with unbelievers, people outside the church um, in, other, in other passages. And I think this is really, really interesting. 
Three instances come to mind. We'll, we'll, we'll treat them very quickly for the sake of time, but all from 1 Corinthians. So the same group of people he's written to, the same audience, this is what he says about hanging out with unbelievers. The first, if someone who isn't a believer asks you home for dinner, accept the invitation if you want to. Eat whatever is offered you without raising consequence, etc., etc. He assumes, Paul does, that you'll be close enough with unbelievers that they might just ask you over for dinner. It's not you asking them for dinner and then having a testimony time in the middle. Kind of a bait and switch. This is, this is them asking you. They like you. They might want to spend time with you. You can't do that if you're walking on the other side of the street. Second instance, 1 Corinthians 14, 24. This is uh, in context of, of Paul talking about the way they worship and about, um, and about their, uh, the way they go about their business. Um, When you're together as Christians, basically, if unbelievers or people who don't understand any of these things, speaking in tongues, prophecy, etc., come into your church meeting and hear everyone speaking in an unknown language, they will think you are crazy. The point isn't tongues or prophecy. That's for another day. The point is Paul expects unbelievers to come to church. This is not a closed thing. Um, being une- don't, being, don't, be un- don't be yoked unequally with unbelievers doesn't mean shut the door, bar it, and post a sentry outside lest one of the unbelievers stumble into the yoke. It means keep the door open, <laughs> leave breadcrumbs outside, and hope they come on in. And in fact, that's so important that the way we act, the way we do church, despite how we might want to do church, the way we do church is always in light of the person whose seat hasn't yet been filled, but might one day be. That's important. Unbelievers are expected at church. Okay? 1 Corinthians seven twelve through 16. Um, this is a little bit more... Um, uh, oh, well, I guess this is, about, this is about marriage. So I guess if we're talking about don't date a girl that's not Christian, we might as well get to this. Um, what he says about, about marriage is actually, um, if a believing woman has a husband who is not a believer and she is willing to continue, or he is willing to continue living with her, she must not leave him. For the believing wife brings holiness to her marriage, and the believing husband brings holiness to his marriage. Otherwise, your children would not be holy, but now they are holy. Don't you wives realize that your husbands might be saved because of you, and vice versa? The point I want to highlight from these three passages is that Paul doesn't at all say that you show your holiness by separating yourselves from those outside the community. In fact, in two of the examples I just gave, your holiness is actually infectious. You demonstrate your holiness by staying tied to the gospel in the midst of engagement with unbelievers. Their unholiness doesn't get on you like germs in the library at at study week. Your holiness gets on them like the smoke on a fire. You know, you can't get out of your clothes the next day. That's precedent. Second, the word unbeliever itself. We'll breeze through this. Fun with Greek. Uh, we'll keep it clear, but I do think this is fun. Um, and I'll try to make it so. I don't juggle, but, but let's go with it. Um, we're going to dig deep for a second. This is important. The word unbeliever in your Bibles is the Greek word apistos. Now, apistos comes from, from two, root, two roots. The first is, or two words, a um, is a, a Greek prefix that means not or an anti. So think atheist, atheist, someone who doesn't, theist. So someone who doesn't believe in God. Pistos means uh, believing or faithful. So in this case, it's pretty simple, right? Not believing or not faithful. So they're not believing. Fair enough. Let's dig that down one step further. I think uh, I like always doing that. I always check these things. Pistos comes from the, the verb, uh, pietho, which means I persuade. When you look at it and you break it down and you kind of play with it and tease it a little bit, actually, it can mean 
those who are not persuaded, the unpersuaded. Lest you think I'm doing some kind of a, a you know, Greek bait and switch, I want to I tie it to Scripture and make sure you know this is, this is the real deal. In three places in the New Testament, the same word is used, apistos, to designate people clearly outside the body of Christ. The first, I'm sorry, is used people inside the body of Christ. So the first is Thomas. Jesus said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop apistos, stop being an apistos and believe. In this case, Thomas is an apistos. He's, an unpers- he's unpersuaded. His friends have told him what happened. He loves the Lord. He's given his life. He's still showing up to prayer meeting. But he's unpersuaded until he, he gets all the way to feeling. The second is, is actually Paul. He uses the word apistos in Titus. Um, he's talking about people. Um, uh, this is about church order. And he says, um, So reprimand them sternly to make them strong in the faith. They must stop listening to Jewish myths and the commands of people who have turned away from the truth. Everything is pure to those whose hearts are pure. But nothing is pure to those who are corrupt and apistos. Because their minds and consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God, but they deny him by the way they live. These are folks who have intimate relationship in a worshiping way with Paul's friends, the, or, uh, Paul's friends that he's writing to about Titus. Okay? The final one, um, in 2 Corinthians, the same book, we get the same word, the same context, and I won't get into it, but um, Paul is talking uh, about, and this is ver- chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, but he's talking to people, talking about people, to his same audience, about people who are in the community, but who are unbelieving. Now, I don't mean to say these are un- they haven't made some kind of a, a, a justification by faith decision. They haven't come forward, bowed their knees, and, and, and pledged Jesus as their Lord and Savior. What I mean to say is these are folks who are kind of flirting with this Jesus thing. They're in, to a degree, like some of you, like me. But they're unpersuaded all the way that this thing's really, really real, that it's legit. I believe that the evidence suggests that Paul wasn't talking, primarily at least, about non-Christians. Based on what we know of his other teaching on interaction with non-Christians, and based on the word apistos and how it's used, it seems to me that Paul used unbelievers here to indicate those who were on the inside. But for some reason, we're not convinced. They remain the unpersuaded. But of what? What didn't they believe? What didn't persuade them? Now we'll pick up the pace and get to where we're going. Put simply, what they're unpersuaded of is that Paul is the real deal. Keep in mind that the Corinth I sketched out above, where success matters, where image matters, where individuality matters, appearance matters. Then you got a guy who comes in, and this is what he brags about. Troubles, hardships, distresses, beatings, imprisonments, riots, sleepless nights, poverty, hunger, and hard work. What a loser. What a loser. For real, he's a loser. In their world, they... Why would you listen to this guy? They also, and this is, this is something I find fascinating. They also believe he's not the real deal because he's plain old ugly. His personal appearance is not endearing. Did you know that about Paul? Check this out. What we have is a document from the same time period as, as, as this letter was written. And what it says, it's basically um, a guy was meant to go meet Paul um, outside of one of the towns that he was ministering to. And what happened is uh, he doesn't know what Paul looks like. There's no Facebook or, or no, no picture they can give him. So he says, well, who do I look for? I'm supposed to greet him at the edge of town. And, and the guy that's seen him before says this, literally, word for word. 
He's a man of middling size and his hair is scanty. His legs were a little crooked and his knees were projecting. He's bow-legged. He had large beady eyes and his eyebrows met a unibrow. (laughs) And his nose was somewhat long. This is the Paul we make up. Superhero Paul. Note the six pack. (laughs) The dude's carrying a man with chains on. The tide can't stop him. And look at that look and that jaw and the beard that's well-groomed despite being on a ship in chains. (laughs) Apparently, prisoners then got a razor. Um, I can't imagine how that'd work, but he's done well for himself, hasn't he? A bow-legged man who's balding, unimpressive, stumbles with a limp, a unibrow, and beady eyes. Not going to win prom king of Corinth. Paul was pathetic. Remember, in their world, success matters. Strength matters. Appearance matters. Individual pride matters. Sex matters. All right, Corinth, you know these people, though, don't you? They're the ones that walk with a little bit of a swagger. You'll see them after church. You'll see them here. It might be me sometimes, but you see them. It's you sometimes, too, isn't it? The picture that's emerging, and as we move to a close, is this. The unbelievers Paul is worried about here are other teachers who are pushing another dangerous version of Christianity, one that's tied to Corinth, to Corinthian values, one that's opposite of the gospel Paul's bringing and has brought, that he planted. Paul is drawing a line in the sand. There are two worlds. There are two ways of being. There's a light. There's a dark. There's righteousness. There's wickedness. There's a temple of God. And there's a temple of idols. There is no middle ground. None. Bad news, folks. Bad news for me, actually. For you as well. Paul is telling them that it is time they cut spiritual ties with the imposters who preach a pretty gospel. And it's time they bind themselves back to Paul, God's true apostle. You're either yoked with them or you're yoked with me. There's only room for two beasts in this work. That's what Paul is about now. We've answered question one. It took a while. I'm going to leave question two for you. What are the values and principles, key ideas you can draw from what Paul had to say to them? And that's that's fertile ground, man, for your own work this week. What does it matter? That's what I want to get at. It hit me as I was walking yesterday thinking about how to tell you people what I was thinking. That uh, my brother and I spent a lot of time together, countless hours. Um, We went to school together, primary school. We walked there in the morning, walk home at night. We played basketball together every day. We shoveled the driveway to play basketball. We fought together. We got our butts kicked together. Um, But it was always together. When my family moved, we moved together. We learned how to cope with a new culture, a new environment uh, together, a thousand miles away. When my family fell apart, we had some hard times. It was my brother and I together who dealt with that. We didn't have anything else. My dad lost his job. We had nothing. Um, we bought each other toiletries together. When we, uh, we did um, get a house, we built a house that was cheaper. We dug the footers with a shovel um, together he and I after school. We put a roof on together when the hurricane came. We sang together. 
We spent some time, man. No wonder those guys on my campus knew we were brothers. We'd spent the bulk of our lives living together. We couldn't get away from each other if we wanted to. Get ready, man. This is bad news. How much am I really around Jesus? How much time am I spending? Have we built any fences this week? Have we, uh, have we sang anything? Have we talked about the stuff we're dealing with, the junk that's come upon us? Am I alone with that? Am I turning to something else to deal with that? How much life am I really doing with him? When I ask myself about my stride, the inconvenient truth is I realized this week that it doesn't resemble his as much as as it used to. The truth is humbling for me, but it's still the truth, you know? I'm not right, really. My walk's out of sorts, man. I got to, as they say, where I'm from, I got to hitch in my giddy up. (laughs) I've got to hitch in my giddy up. Let me show you what that looks like. (laughs) You know, it's a bit of a a disjointed walk. How are you walking? Your walk talks. What is it saying? I need you to answer that for yourself before you leave. We don't have to know what you decided, but you need, to, you need to think about that. How are you walking? Does your heart have a swagger? Have you grown attached to things that just don't fit with Jesus? Have you been trying hard to make room for both light and dark? If someone saw you walking from a distance, and they will today, will they notice any family resemblance with Jesus? Or would they ask when they saw you instead of, are you a Christian? Are you a Varner? Would they ask, are you from Hollywood? Are you from Nashville? Any chance you're from Paris? That's a beautiful outfit. You look intelligent. Are you from Oxford? Not here, huh? (laughs) Listen now, your walk talks. The question is, what is it saying? We'll have the band come on back up now. Why not have you guys stand up, please? What we do at this church is, is great, I think, and that is uh, we invite people to come forward and we respond. Um, this is all words, man. It doesn't mean anything unless we do something with it. Um, I paid the price this week. I'm not kidding you. It messed me up in my head when I had to realize um, that I am out of whack a little bit. Um, and it was, it's a hard week for me. Um, it's not that I'm trying to push that onto you, but I do think it's important that, that we ask. Now, listen, you won't get asked too often how your walk is. There are rare moments when someone will look in the eye and tell you, this is your chance, this is your moment, and I'm doing that right now. Um, at the end of your life, I think what you'll really regret are the missed opportunities, not the, the ones you took and, and missed on, you know? So what I want to invite you to do is come forward. What we've got are folks who are trained to pray. Um, and uh, whatever it is you feel like you need, whatever's been stirring, even if it has nothing to do with what I've said, that's the Holy Spirit um, stirring things up. We trust that. Come forward, and let's, the first step is addressing it, man, admitting that you've got a, a hitch in your giddy-up, and that it's about time you get back uh, to being a disciple, right, to having that walk. I'm going to pray for you now, and then I'd really like you to come forward.